This is Recode Media with Peter Kafka. That is me. I am part of the Vox Media Podcast Network. I'm recording this in New York in late January. If you're listening to this podcast when it comes out, you may still have time to buy a ticket to go see me and Kara Swisher and the people who run Facebook and YouTube and SoundCloud and Patreon and lots of other interesting companies uh, at Code Media, February 12th and 13th in Huntington Beach. Tickets may also be sold out. That is the peril of recording something in advance you don't really know. Um, but anyway, it's a good event. You should go there in person. If you can't get there in person, we will bring uh, highlights of that show to you on this podcast. Okay, enough promo. Um, I am here, as I said, in New York with Nick Thompson, the editor-in-chief of Wired. Do we call it Wired Magazine? We just call it Wired. We call it Wired. Wired. Yeah. Um, former editor of the TheNewYorker.com. Mm-hmm. Uh, accomplished journalist, avid runner, as it says in your bio. <laughs> sure. I want to talk to you about a bunch of stuff, but the news, the news that has brought you to me today. I'll come here anytime you want me to come here, Peter. Deal. Um, in, I was going to go about a future tense, past tense. You guys are in, putting up a paywall. You've announced yes. in the past you're putting up a paywall. The paywall is up. Mm-hmm. All right. So if you're, if you're going to Wired.com today, do you, what, what do you encounter in terms of a wall? Well, if you go to Wired.com five times today, which I hope you will, or you click on five stories, you will encounter a paywall that then asks you to subscribe. So it's a fairly typical publisher paywall. Metered paywall. Yep. You can read whatever you want, but if you read five stories in a month, we ask you to please pay us. Paywall is an old idea. It comes in and out of fashion. It's back in fashion yeah. right now. It's been ever more in fashion over the last couple of years as the media business has changed and as people have watched how paywalls have succeeded and also as customers have become more accustomed to them. I want to talk about the mechanics of the paywall, mm-hmm. um, but I, just philosophically, um, this is something, you're part of the Condé Nast family, you, you guys had a paywall at the New Yorker, is the idea that all of the Condé publications are going to have some form of this. I know Vanity Fair is probably going to institute its own. There aren't any Condé Nast-wide plans that I know about or have heard about. This is very much Wired-specific, but it also very much comes from my experience at The New Yorker. I mean, I ran The New Yorker's website when we put up a paywall, so I learned how we did it. But more importantly, I saw what it does for your business model and what it does for your journalism model, and I want to bring those things over to Wired. Just to spell it out, what, what does it what do does it, for you? I thought you might business. ask that question. I sort of floated that, that up. good softball. All right, so on the business side, it's good to diversify, right? Media business, we all know what's happening to advertising CPMs, right? There's a supply and demand problem. The number of places where you can advertise increases you know, constantly. The number of people who want to advertise. If you're listening to this podcast for the first time, a CPM is the equivalent of an advertising rate. They're right. going down. They're going down. Everybody thought they would go up. Right? Everybody thought that the rates for digital ads would go up over time because you would learn more about your customers, you'd be able to target them better, and ultimately be able to charge advertisers more because you could target your and customers And also because better. old media rates were much higher, we figured they would eventually, we Converge. hoped, they would come up. So that didn't happen, or it happened for a little while, and then for lots of reasons, it reversed course. So CPMs, the rates, are going down digitally. So all digital publishers have to think about this. And so you can come up with lots of different business models. You can host conferences in Huntington Beach, which is an excellent idea. And if you can execute them, uh, that's a good way to do it. You can move into different formats. You can have podcasts where the CPMs are pretty good. You can have videos where the CPMs are pretty good. Or another thing you can do is you can say, hey, 
we actually want you to pay us for the content. That's the you way You can do all of them, right? You can do all of them. You can do some of them well and others badly. You can focus entirely on one. But what's probably not viable is to say, okay, we're just going to do advertisements on words. We're just going to have you know, text content with advertisements against it, and we're going to be able to do high-quality journalism for the indefinite future. That's a fishy proposition. You're almost saying you have no choice but to put up a paywall. Well, that, no. I feel like publishers have no choice but to think about how to diversify their business models. The reason why it is putting up a paywall is much more about the second thing I want to talk about, which is the editorial incentives. So... With an advertising model where you're trying to get as many readers as you can and as many clicks on your page, you have a bunch of perverse incentives, right? You have incentives to do slideshows. You have incentives to rehash the news and pop in the Google News algorithm. You have incentives to do clickbait, right? And you're like serious journalism. advocate. You're, those are all things people want to consume, right? They're not, sure. No one is forcing them to wa- consume a slideshow. No one is forcing them to click on that link. Oh, absolutely. No, there's nothing... There's nothing nefarious about it. I'm just saying that if you're a publisher and your whole revenue source is advertising, your incentives will – you'll have incentives to do those things. Now – In the old – and I used to work for Henry Blodgett. In the old days when we were more optimistic about about digital advertising, we would say that's that's sort of high-minded bullshit. Henry wouldn't use that word, saying, look, playing devil's advocate here. The idea that there's something wrong with making stuff that lots of people want to consume – bogus. Why, why not create lots of stuff? Well, well, there's nothing wrong with that incentive. Why not try to get the most people to, to read, watch your stuff? Totally. Again, I, I'm not saying that that stuff is wrong. And like Ali Insider, I like the number of stories that I read on the beginning the early days of Business Insider, massive, right? Because there's incredible stuff on it. And in fact, I have nothing against traffic. If, you know, in general, a story that is read by more people correlates with the story being better, right? If somebody's rehashing the news and they do it really well yep. and they write good sentences and they have good insights, they will get much more traffic and they'll get much more ad revenue, right? So there is a pretty good correlation between the advertising revenue you get and the number of clicks you get and the quality of the journalism you do. And I, you know, and I have nothing against publishers that do a good job of you know, making beautiful slideshows and make you go through them. That's definitely not what I'm saying. But what happens when you create a subscription business model is that your incentives change significantly because then what you're trying to do is you're trying to build a really deep relationship with your reader, right? So no one is going to subscribe if they think that what you're doing is not unique. They're only going to subscribe if they feel like they can get on your site something they can't get anywhere else. So suddenly your incentives change. You do want as many readers as possible. You do want people to come Frequently, but what you really want them to do is to love your stories, right? So, so when they to finish, give them something distinctive that is worth paying for. Yes, and it may be it may be the stories are okay, but they're packaged well. I mean, it doesn't have. I mean, we all like to think that our stories are unique, beautiful creatures, right? But sometimes it's just the packaging or, or presentation, uh, something yeah. that they think is worth paying for. They can't get somewhere else. Absolutely right. It could be it could be beautiful photography. It could be an incredibly artistic way of doing slideshows. Yeah. It could be that they think. Your headlines are better than anybody else's headlines. But your incentives have shifted a little bit, right? Instead of just being audience, which in general back, you know, two minutes is mostly good, your incentives are now audience and love. Mm -hmm. And so your incentives are better. And that was something that I hadn't understood when we launched the New Yorker's paywall, right? High-minded publication. But once we changed the incentive, it changed the way 
writers wrote. It changed the way editors edited. It changed you know, and one of the interesting things was writers, I would interview them for jobs, and they would say, oh, how do I know that you guys are going to sort of stick to your ideals? And the answer would be, well, trust me, right? It's the New Yorker. We've been around for 90 years. Of course we're going to trust our ideals. But it actually, the argument works better when it's, trust me, we've been around for 90 years, and in fact, our business model depends on us doing that. And then the writers would say, oh, and it would be kind of easier to recruit. And so, over the couple of years from when we launched the paywall at The New Yorker, I saw this kind of benefit to the journalism. And so that's what I want to do at Wired, is to create the same incentives in the, in the whole process, from the people we hire to the stories they write to the editors, the way they edit them, to the way we package them, to the way we present it. And again, it's not like we're you know, radically shifting and all we're going to do are these massive 15,000-word investigations because that's all that people will pay for. No, you know, we're going to write about what happened 15 minutes ago and we're going to do it as well as we can, but we're going to be trying to also you know, focus constantly about building relationships with readers and giving them stuff that they're going to pay for. You guys do do long-form stuff. You do do beautifully packaged stuff. That's always been a hallmark of the magazine. Thank you. But how do you think the stuff you will make will change when the wall goes up starting today? <laughs> it's going to be subtle and it's going to happen over time. I mean, the way that it's not like the day before the paywall, the quality of the stories was X and the mm-hmm. day after it's going to be 3X. Like Jessica Lesson from the information has a thing where she says, well, we're only, we're, because we're not advertising driven, we don't have incentive to produce multiple things a day. We might do one thing a day, but we might do a handful of things per week. They each have to cl- clear this very high bar. Um, that you're not going to go into that sort of slow journalism where you're, you're doing a, a handful of things per week. No, God, no. I mean, and Jessica's in a totally different business where A, all she does is have the subscription model and B, her subscriptions yeah. cost a ton of money, uh-huh. right? We're still going to be predominantly advertising driven. We're not radically shifting, right? If you look at our revenue streams next year, you know, the vast majority will still be advertising. Yeah, how much will a subscription be? A subscription will be 20 bucks. You 20 get the bucks. first three months free, and then it'll be 20 bucks. And then, but there will not be ads if I subscribe, right? Yes. So that's, we that's have— That's different than I think most publications today. Yeah, it's a, it was a complicated conversation, a complicated choice. Um, a bunch of things went into it. So one is we've always had an ad-free product. Like, and a bunch of—a lot of people have paid Wired in order to see Wired without ads, without having to feel like jerks who use ad blockers. The reason they do that are the same reason why other people use ad blockers, right? The page looks a little bit cleaner. But also wired readers are more technologically significant than average readers, and they care more about advertising tracking scripts. They care more about page latency. They're more, more likely to know what a cookie is. They're more likely to know what a cookie is. And so we're going to be giving them, when you subscribe, you'll get the version without ads optimized for that both because the page will look a little cleaner, but also because it will have fewer scripts and calls and all that stuff. So you, you, I, was, I would cut you off. Uh, you were sort of talking about the revenue mix. So what percent of overall Wired magazine revenues will come from ads versus subscriptions, do you think? So there are going to be three main revenue streams. The first will be, and the vast majority will be ads and will continue to be ads. And in Majority fact, revenue will be advertising. Oh, absolutely, for quite a while. And our advertising revenue is great. Um, you know, we have a print publication. People are buying lots of print ads because it's good readers to reach. It's a good platform to reach them, and the ads look beautiful. Our digital advertising is doing quite well, too. This is more about creating a new revenue stream. So the three revenue streams. Number one is going to be advertising, vast majority of revenue for a long time to come. Number two will be subscriptions. 
And it's not like we didn't have subscriptions before. You could still subscribe to the print magazine or the tablet edition. This will be subscriptions to read the web page and then subscriptions across all the different platforms where Wired appears. And then the third is affiliate revenue, which is something that we've been pushing hard the last three months. And that's where we review a bunch of headphones. Mm -hmm. And if you click and you buy them after you read it, you click on a link at the bottom that says buy this now, a percentage of that purchase will come back to us through Skimlix People are very excited about this, right? Uh, Wirecutter is sort of the the best known. Wirecutter is the best known. New York Times bought them. A lot of folks are trying to do this themselves, you guys included. We're in it. Revenue is way up. It's possible that because so many people are doing it that it will become less effective. It's possible that Amazon, once it's got everybody doing it, will say, actually, hey, you know, I can give you a little less than we used to They already you. did that. They did, it, do it, they again. did it almost they immediately it after the Times bought the wire cut. I said, oh, we're going to cut our rates. You know, and they have all the power here. So it's a good revenue source today. Will it be a good revenue source in three years? I hope so. Uh, and then we, you know, we also, we put on a conference there, but our main revenue streams are those three things. You're the editor-in-chief. Uh, traditionally, in the, in the old version of, of publishing, uh, the editor-in-chief was theoretically responsible for the editorial part of the publication, not the business part. The reality was always a little more blended. When it comes to decisions like a paywall, when it comes to decisions like we're going to push into to affiliate revenue, how much agency do you have there? A uh, lot. I mean, my job is, you know, it's a combination of editor-in-chief and then you know, very close partner to our chief revenue officer. And I spend a lot of my time, surely more time than, you know, editor two generations before, uh, thinking through, all right, well, if we do this, what will be the revenue? You know, what are the risks? It's it's a complicated job because, you know, there are real benefits to keeping the two sides separate. You know, and there are potential conflicts of interest, there are potential perverse incentives, there are potential sticky situations. And so... My job is to try to navigate through those and to make sure that the we never make an editorial decision that's influenced in a you know bad way by you know business incentives. When, when you took the job a year ago, right? Yeah, um, same same, uh, same week as Donald did, Trump started. It's easy to remember. Congrats! Thank did you. you say so? You're responsible for this. Did you <laughs> say I want to do a paywall? Was that part of the pitch? Was oh yeah, that was completely part of the pitch. I think yeah. I mentioned it in the first first time I talked to the staff. I said this is coming. Um, the only reason it's taken a year to do is that we were doing a content management system migration. And so our product roadmap was very much focused on that through the first six months of my job. We should do a sub-podcast, a spin-out podcast on CMS. Oh, man. Well, I'm also the co-founder of The Atomist. I mean, I've got a lot of CMS talk, experience. I can talk, talk about that. You want to talk for hours about CMSs? Listen, you heard Vox Media, home of the CMS's differentiator, although we stopped talking about that. <laughs> um, Facebook. Yes, heard Conflicts. of it. Um, we're a couple weeks after Facebook said we are kind of getting out of the news business, sort of, maybe. Some people say that. We're having some, we, we, we want to be very clear that we're doing something. We're making a big announcement about it. How, how it's actually going to play out is, uh, yet to be seen. So what, what do you think Facebook was telling the publishing world and maybe other constituencies as well? I think that Facebook has had an incredibly difficult last couple of years and they've seen, where they make billions of dollars. Yeah, it's billions not and financially and difficult. Yeah. I mean, it's emotionally difficult. But they're so well compensated, it's okay. But I think that what you've seen in the last two months is the fruits of the reckoning and the thinking that Zuckerberg and the other top management have been doing. So it kind of starts, um, they do an earnings call. Zuckerberg says he's going to make a little bit less, less money. They put out this research report in um, December 
that says, well, you know, people have asked us, is social media good for you or is it bad for you? And turns out if you use it passively, it's bad for you. And if you use it in depth, it's good for you. The good news is it's good for you if you do it right. The good news, well, as with all things Facebook, the research indicates that if you use Facebook a lot, it will be good. Yeah. And then Zuckerberg puts out his New Year's resolution, which is, I'm, you know, I'm sad that our platform can be misused. I'm sad that it can make you unhappy, and I'm going to make it better, which is pretty different from his annual resolutions. And then they announce— That's right. Normally, it's, I'm going to run a lot. I'm going to learn Mandarin. I'm going to read some books. I'm I'm going to slaughter my own meat. Yeah. This is literally (laughs) what he said. And this year, it's, I'm going to fix Facebook. Uh, And then they announce that, you know, we are going to rejigger the algorithm so that we favor meaningful interactions as opposed to meaningless interactions. And— um, and as a result of that, we will also drive content away from publishers. So there's one hypothesis, you know, Frank Four has put the most articulate version of it, which is that Facebook basically decided that news is a hassle. You get into the news business and A, you have to meet with journalists. It's a pain in the ass because suck. they're unhappy. They complain. And they're pissed off and like they are frustrated because they're working really hard to grapple with all these questions that you guys blew through and the journalists are all losing their jobs and Facebook's making all this money. Well, and often by the time they're writing about you and they're also engaged in a business that is dependent on you. So it's not like they're writing about the environment or really anything where they don't have a direct stake in it. Yeah. Um, so they're particularly salty. The they come to talk relationship to between Facebook and journalists is one of the most confusing, most unhappy things there is. Not things. One of the most unhappy, confusing dynamics there is in our business. So there's the one hypothesis. I'll call it the Frank Four hypothesis, which is that Facebook has said, we've had it. We're done. Forget it. It's not worth it. And that this is Zuckerberg gradually stepping away from the news business, right? So Facebook got into the news business like four years ago. They didn't really intend to come to dominate it, um, or at least they, and they certainly didn't think through the consequences of what happens when they come to dominate it. They got to the point and they're like, oh, this is a pain in the ass. Let's go backwards. I kind of don't think that's right. I think what's happening is they're looking at their platform and they're saying, there's a lot of crap. And actually, it's bad for our readers and it's making people frustrated at Facebook and there are all kinds of consequences. So we're going to get rid of a lot of the crap. We're going to get rid of some of the clickbait. They've worked really hard in the last year to get rid of some of the outright lies, the fake news. Um, my guess is that six months from now, we're going to see that what this change has done is helped high-quality places like, for example, Vox or Wired, but it's also hurt um, more partisan and the because they're not going to not have news stories distributed on Facebook. If I want to share a Vox story or uh, uh, what was the magazine I just learned about yesterday? I just got shuttered. Baggers. Mm-hmm. Turns out that's a motorcycle magazine owned by nice. Bonnie. It's now being closed. Uh, or or Babe.net. Mm-hmm. If I want to share the Aziz Ansari story, um, Facebook will let me do it. And if a lot of my friends are interested in talking about the Aziz Ansari story, a lot of them, are, that's going to circulate. And so that there'll be still a lot of traffic directed towards news. There'll still be a lot of consumption of news on Facebook. Yeah, I think that there'll be tons of, I think publishers that publish stories like that Aziz Ansari story that get lots of feedback and comments, those stories will do really well in the algorithm. I think if you publish smart things that people talk about, you'll do fine. So oh, I by the way, dumb things people talk about. Or dumb things you people talk about. Yeah. Right? Their, their point, their, it sounds like what they're saying is we're going to spend less time and we're going to get rid of some of the most noxious stuff. We, and we would like to not have Russians populating our, our feed with, with spam. Um, but we're going to spend less time trying to sort of make sure that publishers are happy or less unhappy. 
um, and, and we're going to spend less time sort of trying to get that stuff to circulate. I think that's right. Yeah, I think that's the, that is the shift and that is the thinking. And, you know, there are going to be lots more announcements coming out of Facebook about the media business and about publishing over the next few months. And I think some of them will make the publishing industry happy, though this one that they just did clearly did not. If you're in the media business, this is a big deal. You care about this. I would argue that you, if, you, if you've been thinking about this at all, you probably have come to this conclusion already. And in some ways, this is sort of a formal announcement of a thing that known. Um, right? Facebook traffic has been going down. Any The money you make from ads on Facebook has been un, unsatisfying. Um, and you've probably reached this conclusion. Do you think a reader is going to, a Facebook user will be able to tell that, that, that Facebook has changed what it's doing? I think savvy people will notice that, wait, you know, I liked the New York Times and I used to see three stories and two baby pictures and now yeah. I see one story and four baby pictures. I think savvy people will notice it, but most people will just scroll through and not see a ton. I think there probably will be a decline in the amount of video you see. I think Facebook has been very frustrated at the amount of mindless video watching on the site. Right? We all know how it works. Like a video starts to play and you kind of stare at it, but you don't comment on it. It doesn't engage you in any way. Facebook clearly knows that the internet is shifting towards visual media and that you know, the percentage of web content that is video will be way higher, will engage video more in the future. But they also don't want it to be stuff we don't react to. So there will be far less video in your feed. Well, actually, the rate of growth of video will slow. So there'll still probably be a little more video in your feed a year from now, but much less than there would have been had they not made this yeah. algorithmic change. I have two thoughts. The one, I've, I've, astonished, I've been astonished for a couple of years watching all of these publishers spend a lot of time and energy creating literally the same video, right? They're taking the same B-roll of a yeah. drone company's video and putting motion graphics on it because they've, they've, that's a thing that works. And by the way, Facebook was encouraging it. For, so um, I'm thinking, well, that can't be what they want for eight different publishers to make basically the same video. And no, those publishers can't be happy. Like, it just seems like no one can be satisfied except that any individual publisher can go, well, we've got a million views for it, so it's worth doing, right? Right. The video element of our industry the last couple of years has been crazy because it is a place where you do get high advertising revenue. But nobody really knows who's watching videos. We don't have standards for what is a view. There's a lot of repetitive content going on there. There's a lot of strange um, traffic generation schemes going on in the background. There's Facebook's weird relationship where they pay publishers and then pull out. It's it's kind of the Wild West right now, and it will settle and we'll figure it out yeah. a little bit better, but it's a, a bit crazy right now. I mean, I'm old, so I, I don't know anyone who says, I want to go watch some video on Facebook. Right. Now, maybe people do do that. Maybe that it, that is satisfying them, but it seems like the version, the, the, the video that was dominating Facebook was not what people really wanted. It was the way Facebook had constructed it's system to deliver video, so they'll change it. Yeah. Um, They're trying to change that, though. I mean, they are trying to have it be more like YouTube, where you do go to right. YouTube and start bouncing around. So related to that, every six, nine months, Facebook says, here's a new thing we think is really important. Mm-hmm. It's live video. It's Facebook Watch is the most recent thing, and you can yeah. go back. And every six or nine months, here's a new initiative we think is really important. We want to work with publishers. They've gotten smart Over the years, they got smarter about going and talking to the publishers in advance and what kind of terms would you like and maybe we'll write you a check. Over the last uh, two years. Two years. Um, but each time they did it, it required the publishers that participated to say, all right, we'll try that and we'll dedicate some amount of time and resources. We might hire people to do this. Um, 
as someone who runs a magazine, as someone who runs a publishing business, how do you feel about responding to those new initiatives? I don't think those are going to stop. They're not going to stop. You deal with them from Facebook. You deal with them from Snapchat. You deal yep. with them from YouTube. Like all of all of the tech platforms will create new initiatives, and they'll come to the high end publishers and say, "We'd like you to be a partner." And sometimes there'll be terms where they, you know, will pay you for the cost it takes to you know, get going on that particular initiative. It's really complicated, and you have to weigh a bunch of factors. You weigh, do we think this will work? If Facebook comes to you, you know it will work because you know the audience is there. You know it will work short term. You know it will work short term, yes. And if Facebook says it's going to work short term, it's going to work short term because they can they turn the dial and say, look, everyone likes watching live video. Right, a new platform that you haven't heard of comes and says it, you're not as confident. So that's one factor you weigh. You also then weigh, okay, well, is the content we're going to have to create to match what you want to create going to be something we're proud of? And that's not necessarily the case with Facebook. That's one you have to weigh a little harder, or at least that's one I've had to weigh a little harder in my experience. And then you figure out, can we monetize it long run? Because you don't want to be in a situation where you have a revenue guarantee for a short period of time, but then the revenue guarantee goes away, you've hired all these people, yep. and you're stuck. And that happens all the time. Um, you know, one of the things I think about and wonder about is whether in five years we're going to have a situation where the tech platforms are just paying the publishers, right? Because the, all the other revenue models have gone away if advertising is low and the tech platforms have grown and grown and grown. And they come to the realization that it's better for them as citizens in this country and as you know, places where people get their information if there's good information. And they're not going to want to create that information so then are they going to just offer us money? And that would be so strange. Just put you on a stipend. Basically make the media in the United States, and it's not state-owned media, but it's technology platform-owned media. And that's the direction we're kind of heading in. And it's frightening and weird. And they don't want it. They don't want it, but they're talking about they're, it. They're, they're, they're thinking they're about it. They're super apprehensive about it, right? Every time there's a, a, an editorial question, they get freaked out. Um, I think that they really do believe that it's the, that the, things work best when you open up the internet and let people do what they want, and that will get you to the correct answer. Well, well, but that's partially their current view and is certainly their old view. But let's look at Facebook and fact-checking. So Facebook had a crisis after the election and realized that they want to be able to at least somewhat fact-check the news. They're not going to hire fact checkers, right? Right, but they paid the fact checking organizations, right? They they effectively did setting up partnerships with them. So what if you get to the point where it's not fact checking they want, and then they stopped, and then they stopped? So what if you get to the point where it's not fact checking that they want, it's actual news and analysis that they want, and they feel like there's not enough of? I think I think many of them are so petrified of being of, of, of in addition to every other problem they deal with than being held to account for paying for this story for this thing for uh, promulgating this view um, you saw they tied themselves up over knots when, when they were accused of favoring liberal media and, and their trending thing yep it's not really true but they spent months having to deny it and explain mm-hmm. that they had conservatives who worked at Facebook um, <laughs> Yeah, and but by the way, then then they talk about buying rights for cricket. So they they go in and out of content. They go they go in and out of content. It's a I don't know where we'll be in five years, but I'm very interested if the economic trends continue the way they're going, um, if Facebook's evolution of the way it thinks continues in the way it's going. I'm 
I'm a participant, but I'm also a curious observer and also somebody who's a little bit scared. Steer this back to Wired a little bit. So yeah. the, whenever I have a, a magazine person uh, on this podcast, I have a bunch, um, I always ask my version of this question, which is, why are you making a magazine in 2018 or whatever year we're talking in? Um, because of Facebook, because of Twitter, um, I have an unlimited smorgasbord of, of stories. They're great stuff. I can pay for it. I can not pay for it. I yeah. can assemble it how I want. I can have my friends put it together. Because um, normally someone says, it's the curation. We curate this stuff. But that seems less and less useful to me as a consumer. Yeah, I still love having a magazine. And I did at The New Yorker and I do a Wired now. Why? Isn't that old school? A couple things. One, the U.S. Postal Service is a really good delivery platform right now. And they will deliver it to 800,000 people every month and they'll get it at their front door and they will open their mail and they will see this magazine. Right? And it turns out that on the internet, obviously, if you get lucky, you can reach more than 800,000 people. Right? You can have stories that pop. Mm-hmm. But you can also put out really good stuff that's seen by nobody because it doesn't actually work in the algorithms. So having a distribution mechanism that gets it to 800,000 doorsteps is good. So that's starting point number one. Number two, it's a format that people like, right? We love our phones, we love our computers, but actually having a physical thing with you, there's still some value, right? And it's demographically shifting, right? To people over 50, that format is more valuable, more comfortable to people under 20, like they don't yeah, even know used, what it is. I mean, you've rode the F train for a long time. Right, right. Or, so, or, or a subway in in New York, and you saw you saw newspapers and magazines disappear from that commute, and that's a generally well heeled group of people who read a lot of stuff, and they're no longer reading bound objects or printed objects. Yeah. So you are you have a diminishing demographic that sees it as a valuable thing, right? But it is not zero, right? It is still substantial. So number one, thank God for the postal service. Number two, it is still a format that people like. Number three. And this is the most complicated one, particularly when it comes to complicated long-form storytelling. There is something about the process of creating a magazine version of a story, you know, being limited in time because there's, physic- there's a real deadline, being limited in space because you have a certain number of pages, being limited in all the ways you're limited that makes the stuff better usually, Right. Sometimes having no constraints makes you create something better, and sometimes actually having constraints make you do something better. This story has to be 8,000 words. Right. Or this interview has to be 30 minutes, so you're going to get through all the important questions and actually be better for the readers. Or you could say, we're going to talk forever, and maybe that interview will be better. But there is something about having the physical magazine that creates, in general, better work. Right now, I also help found The Atavist. We do you know, long form with much slacker deadlines and much slacker constraints, and I'm very happy with it. But there is something about the magazine that leads to consistently excellent and terrific long form. So, postal service, physical thing, destination every month, reminder of Wired, the magazine, the beautiful photography you can put into it, the design you can put into it, and the fact that you can package it. So, I'm sitting here and I've got um, an issue in front of me. It's called The Golden Age of Free Speech. I'm nodding my head. I can see it. You can see it. I hope, uh, listeners, can you see it? It's an arresting visual. It's an arresting visual with sort of a decaying text, you know, rusted text that says Golden Age of Free Speech. And we put together five pretty great essays, five absolutely great essays, on what free speech means in the digital era. Great writers. And this goes back to your curation point. There is something about being able to read those five essays one after the other and to look at them in the same physical object like a book, you know, we call the magazine the book, um, that has real value. 
So will Wired still be putting out a magazine in 10 years? I don't know because obviously some of the things I've talked about, those trends are only going to continue. Will Wired still be putting out a magazine in a year? Yeah, absolutely. So you have one of these increasingly rare jobs, right? I am the editor of a big, well-known publication that still commands interest and respect and generates enough money to pay your salary and many other people. Um, you get the job a year ago. You want to put your stamp on the property. Uh, Radhika Jones is going to do this at Vanity Fair uh, over the next year or so. In addition to the paywall, you've got you to hold the magazine up. What did you want to do with a magazine that would separate it from uh, Scott Datich? It's Datich or Datich? Datich. Datich. Um, from his tenure. And presumably you did want to do something just for no other reason to say this is how I think the magazine should look. Yeah. Or B. It's a little bit, it's a complicated question in part because I don't know what the answer is. So it's different from sometimes when editors come in and want to completely reinvent something because I had worked at Wired prior to The New Yorker for five years, right? I had worked under Chris Anderson. I had, in fact, worked with Scott. So I was part of the continuum that led to Wired. And I was a big fan of Wired. And many of my friends made Wired. So it wasn't like I came in and was like, I am here and everything you've done up to this moment is garbage and now we shall do it a different way. It was more, I came in, I've got a different set of interests, I've got a different set of skills, and I said, okay, let's start doing things this way instead of that way. Like, obviously, you replace Scott Dadich, you know, brilliant, many award-winning, you know, designer, you know, also you know, very That's smart he came, up, he came up as a design slash technology. He was a design guy, became a design slash technology guy. Yeah. Then was editing Wired. Yeah, design, technology, product. So he was, you know, he worked on all aspects of the magazine, but he had particular experience in that area. I come up having been a senior editor at Wired doing features, a senior editor at The New Yorker doing features, and then digital and product. Obviously, I've got a different background, so I'm going to be putting a little bit more of my focus in the style of the features, the way the feature well is put together, whether we can do digital features online. So there were some changes. Um, I think there was a very deliberate effort to kind of pull the magazine a little bit more back to its roots, focus on core technology, focus on... Um, to its roots from pulling away from... You can, so you take it by anything like Wired, and you can either have it be... It can be a magazine where it says technology has been integrated into all elements of life. Let's focus on the most interesting elements of life and how technology affects them. Or you can say Wired is a magazine that has kind of looked for the edge of where technology is and kind of the craziest questions and the experimenters, and let's write about them. And they're not two completely different magazines. You never want it to be all one or all the other. But I think there has been a shift. Or there, I have tried there to be a shift to have it be more like the latter one, the people on the edge, the sort of the strange technology, the deep in Silicon Valley, which is what the magazine came out of, which isn't a critique of where it was before it came in. It's just been the prioritization right. it that was we've a, had. It was a particularly nerdy magazine when it came out. I want right? to make it nerdier. You want, you want to nerd it up a bit. Nerd it up. So that we've been doing that. But, I mean, and you look at this issue, right? So the golden age of free speech, that's not a nerd issue, but it's a really complicated tech issue. So how does... And, and it's a really complicated idea. You also don't idea. have a famous person with a gag over their mouth, which is, I think... I think how people would have expected Scott Datich's magazine to there aren't, a year ago if he would have, if he would if he was tackling that subject. You don't. We don't have. I mean, one difference is there aren't a lot of people on the cover, right? I haven't assigned any covers that have people on it. There was one, a Blade Runner cover, which I was delighted by, which we had assigned before I started. Um, but we don't. It's not a magazine where there are famous people on the cover. 
you know, for, for better or for worse. That's something you can do quickly. How long do you think it takes to, to sort of incubate your version of a magazine? Is that something you, you have done in a year or is that a, another year before it's yeah, your so this, thing? So back to the, the original question. So my philosophy on how to work and my life philosophy, for better or worse, is, you know, something you learn at The New Yorker where if you watch the leadership of The New Yorker, there's never a moment where they're like, you know what, we should be something different we should tear it up or we should do. They come in every morning and they're like, we're going to make the best darn thing we can do today and we're going to try to do it a little better than we did yesterday, right? And it's, it's never said explicitly, like David doesn't sit there in the lotus position and say, you know, like we shall be 1% better today than we were yesterday. But you watch and that's the way the people work, right? And they don't like go off on retreats and come back with big ideas and shake it up. They come in every day and they do their best. And that's sort of the philosophy I try to follow at Wired, where we do special issues, we do big things, but really the focus is, let's try to be better today than we were yesterday. Let's try to find better stories. Let's edit them better. Let's find better art. Let's put it together better. But we haven't done you know, a series of radical things where we've torn it up and we've you know, stayed up all night. It is The hope is that it will just be consistently good and consistently better. Optimistic incrementalism. Optimistic. Well, you know, actually, okay, here's this optimism is the other really complicated thing for me um, and for Wired. So the founding principle of Wired was that it would be optimistic, right? That in general, the future is getting technology better. Technology is going to make the future better. The internet is going to make the change is, gonna is make, good. Is going to make the, the world better. This is all great. Right. We report from a country west of California called the future and it's awesome, right? And I like that. And I liked working under Chris Anderson there. That was totally the philosophy. But in 2017, you can't have a clear-eyed look at the effect of technology in society and completely believe that anymore. Or at least I don't think you can. Even in 2018. 2018. Where are we? I know, I know. I mean, who knows in 2019. So that's been a hard thing because it's not as though I'm a pessimist. In general, technology is definitely making the world a better place. I love my phone. Right. I love all the technology coming. I'm incredibly excited about AI. I think the concerns about you know X, Y, and Z um, are mostly. And evolved. if you think about technology in the future, you're you're comfortable in various points with the idea that there are bad effects of technology. There's lots of science fiction where we think, oh look look what has happened that is bad. Yeah. Right. There's a lot of Twilight Zone. A lot of Black Mirror takes it to an extreme. Absolutely. But that's that's a well sort of worn path. But Wired is always like it's generally going to be great. There might be some killer robots. Might be some but killer robots, also might some be cool laser beams that will defeat the killer robots. Yeah, and we still have a lot of that, right? We still have stories where we say, you know, here's something great that's coming, or we are, we are generally much more optimistic about I don't know, AI, genetic engineering, robotics, all the things that people. Well, freak by the way, out you have about. to convince someone to pay for this, so it can't be overwhelmingly negative, and you also want advertisers to come hang out, so it can't be total despair, right? They've got a solo watch <laughs> or a high end liquor. Yeah, those, those those factors are true, but we try not to. You, you you hope that you settle on the editorial vision without worrying about those particular factors while you do it. Um, so no one's going to have a dystopia wired pop up store in Soho, right? That that's not an attractive uh, feature for Samsung. Is is probably Samsung would be less interested in the dystopia store. <laughs> um, but so what we try to do is take a clear eyed look at the hardest issues that are in in the world of technology. So we are. People who love tech, people who are interested in tech, people who are not scared of tech looking at the hardest issues in tech. And that's what, you know, this issue in the golden age of free speech is, where there are really hard questions about 
free speech because in some ways, this is the era of free speech. Anybody can say anything. But on the other hand, no one will hear it unless the Facebook algorithm blasts it out to them. So you have, and also, by the way, what they might want to say is might be reprehensible, and and we've all right. again, I, I talk about this a bunch. The, the, for a long time, I think everyone in technology, a lot of people in technology, assume that if you have more of it, things overall get better. If you, right. If you offer the internet to more people in more parts of the world, generally those parts of the world will get better. Right. Turns out not necessarily. Right. So this is the other interesting thing about optimism. It's not just a clear-eyed view of the world leads you to a less optimistic position. It's that a clear-eyed view of the world recognizes that the early optimism actually created some of the problems we have today. So, and that's exactly what you talked about, right? So the founders of Twitter, you know, speak about this very eloquently, or Ev speaks about it very eloquently, where it's, they just assumed that people would be nice, even if they were able to create accounts with eggs and say whatever they want and comment on anybody's post and reshare anybody's post. So they built in all of these features to maximize free speech, to maximize openness, to maximize anonymity, because they thought that human nature was something that it's not. And so they created the system, it has all these problems, now they're trying to unwind it. But that is, you know, in a nutshell, it describes one of the challenges for Wired, which is we used to have that view that Ev had and Jack Dorsey had when they set it up, and now we have a different view. And we're not dystopian, we're not critical, we're not negative, but... We're serious and we're clear-eyed. Clear-eyed optimists. Yeah, there Can you we go. we describe Wired Magazine as the home for clear-eyed optimism? Go for it. Who are thinking about... I mean, that's a good slogan. Let's just let's, let's go let's, with that. Let's end there. That's a good place to end, Well, we? there is one, you go, know... Oh, no, got a coda. Go for it. <laughs> you know, I sometimes joke, but the old slogan was, Wired is where the future is realized. And I sometimes joke that I want it to be where the future is realized and the present is fixed. You got the last word. Thanks, (laughs) Dick Thompson. Thank you, Peter. That was really fun. It was fun talking to you. Thanks to you guys for listening. I love it when you listen. I love it when you tell me that you listen. I love it when you send me emails saying, that's really great. I love it the most when you tell other people, via Twitter, Facebook, whatever platform you want to use, you can walk up and down the street yelling about how much you love Recode Media just as long as you get people to try it. That'd be great. And that is literally all we ask. Hey, go to Apple Podcasts. Leave us a review there, too. That'd be nice. Thank you to our sponsors. Thanks to Cadence 13 and Vox Media who bring those sponsors to this podcast so you can listen to Recode Media for free. Thanks to Joel Robbie who edits the show and to my producers, Golda Arthur and Eric Johnson. Thanks again for listening. I will see you next week. Hey, this is Peter Kafka, the host of Recode Media. You have been listening to this podcast, which means that you like listening to people talk about media and technology, which is very good news because we've got an entire conference all about just that topic. It's Code Media. It's coming up very soon. You should go. February 12th and 13th in Huntington Beach, California. That is a very, very nice place to be in February. Specifically, it's the Pasea Hotel and Spa there in Huntington Beach. Enough about the place. I want to tell you about what we're going to do there. We're going to talk to the smartest, most interesting people in media and technology. We, as Kara Swisher and I, we're going to talk to people like Oath CEO Tim Armstrong, You've heard him on this podcast before. Patreon CEO Jack Conte, you've heard him on this podcast before. And HuffPost Editor-in-Chief Lydia Polgreen, you've heard her on this podcast before. There's a theme there. Other awesome guests you may not have heard before. Susan Wojcicki, she's the CEO of YouTube. Kerry Trainer, he's the CEO of SoundCloud. I don't think he's spoken publicly anywhere yet. That's a, that's a good one. Executives from Facebook, a bunch of other cool people I can't tell you about yet because we haven't formally announced them, but you will enjoy hearing from all of them. If you like this podcast, you will like this conference. If you want to learn more, you can go to recode.net, click on events, 
it's easy to find. Um, you can figure it out because you are smart because you listen to this podcast. That's Code Media Conference, February 12th and 13th in Huntington Beach, California. I will see you there. <laughs>